Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Harrison Podcast. As we draw close to Election Day in 2016, I've reflected upon the many changes that have occurred in our process of selecting presidents since the time of Harrison. While Harrison staged a campaign that was much more modern than that of previous elections, it would be over 100 years before one aspect of the presidential campaign season, now seen as a key component of the process, would be introduced, and a few cycles longer before it would become a standard practice. That is the presidential debate. A simple question about what I was doing for the debates this year got me thinking about what a debate between Van Buren and Harrison in 1840 would have sounded like. The result was this humble effort, the imagined first round of a debate between Harrison and Van Buren, which was composed by utilizing the speeches and written statements of both men, as well as a couple of additional primary and secondary resources, which shall, as always, be noted on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. For vocal assistance, special thanks to my husband, Alex Lawson, for portraying General Harrison. As I was unable to find a taker to lend their voice to Van Buren, I promise I wouldn't have made anyone wear Van Buren whiskers for long. You're left with some studio magic and my attempt at a Dutch accent. I apologize in advance for it, but I did want to convey the fact that Van Buren, due to his first language being Dutch, likely spoke a bit differently than his contemporaries. I tried to find some guidance in terms of contemporary accounts of how both Van Buren and Harrison spoke, but thus far have come up empty-handed. If you feel that anything in my interpretation is an error, or have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast. Again, all one word. Without further ado, let's grab some audio gear, hop into the Wayback Machine, and journey to 1840 for the hypothetical presidential debate. Welcome, audience, to Nassau Hall on the campus of the College of New Jersey in Princeton, New Jersey, host of this year's first presidential debate. New Jersey is one of the states where both campaigns are waging a heated battle, so it seemed only fitting to bring the candidates to the people to share their thoughts on the issues so that the electorate could be well-informed as they go to the polls. I'm your moderator for this auspicious occasion, Jerry Landry. Without further ado, let us introduce our two candidates. The Democratic candidate is from the neighboring state of New York, which he served as senator and governor before assuming the vice presidency and is now seeking re-election to a second term as president. Please welcome President Martin Van Buren. The Whig candidate hails from the state of Ohio. Previously, he served as the Indiana Territorial Governor before his move to the Buckeye State, which he served as Representative and Senator before going on to seek the presidency. Please welcome General William Henry Harrison. Gentlemen, let's get started. The first question is for President Van Buren. Mr. President, The nation has been suffering from economic turmoil for the past few years. Were you to be granted a second term, what would your administration do to help support the economic recovery? 
Thank you so much, sir, for that question, and thank you to the College of New Jersey for hosting this debate. My second administration would be a continuance of the democratic policies of fiscal responsibility that have served our nation well since the administration of my predecessor, Andrew Jackson. In the last four years, every demand upon the government at home or abroad has been promptly met. This has been done not only without creating a permanent debt or a resort to additional taxation in any form, but in the midst of a steadily progressive reduction of existing burdens upon the people. However, while having dealt with the national debt, we must now look at the state debt. Already have the resources of many of the states and the future industry of their citizens been indefinitely mortgaged to the subjects of European governments to the amount of 12 millions annually to pay the constantly accruing interest on borrowed money, a sum exceeding half the ordinary revenues of the whole United States. The pretext which this relation affords to foreigners to scrutinize the management of our domestic affairs, if not actually to intermeddle with them, presents a subject for earnest attention, not to say of serious alarm. This would be a subject examined by my second administration to see how we could extricate ourselves and put our resources back to work for the American citizens. Thank you, Mr. President. General Harrison, what would your administration do to help to support the economic recovery? Thank you, sir. And thank you to the college for hosting us, as well as to my esteemed opponent for taking time to leave the seat of government to participate in this debate. While I believe that the president can recommend proposals to the Congress to seek to alleviate the concerns of all our citizens, a privilege which he holds in common with every other citizen, I cannot conceive that by a fair construction of the Constitution that any of its provisions would be found to constitute the President a part of the legislative power. In my opinion, it is necessary to watch the administration and to see that it keeps within the bounds of the Constitution and the laws of the land. The Executive of the Union has immense power to do mischief if he sees fit to exercise that power. He may prostrate the country. Indeed, this country has been already prostrated. It has already fallen from pure republicanism to a monarchy in spirit, if not in name. The Constitution has declared it to be the duty of the President to see that the laws are executed, and it makes him the commander-in-chief of the armies and navy of the United States. If the opinion of the most approved writers upon that species of mixed government, which in modern Europe is termed monarchy, in contradistinction to despotism, is correct, there was wanting no other addition to the powers of our chief magistrate to stamp a monarchical character on our government, but the control of the public finances. Should I be placed in the presidential chair, I shall invite a recurrence to the old Republican rule, to watch the administration and to condemn all its acts, which are not in occurrence with the strictest mode of Republicanism. It is a return to the ideals of Jefferson that will ensure the future prosperity of our nation. Mr. President, would you care to respond? With all due respect to my opponent, 
half a century of government under the Constitution, teeming with extraordinary events and elsewhere producing astonishing results, has passed along, but on our institutions has left no injurious mark. Our system, purified and enhanced in value by all it has encountered, still preserves its spirit of free and fearless discussion, blended with unimpaired fraternal feeling. The independent treasury system, which is now in successful operation after its adoption by Congress in July of this year, does away forever all dependence on corporate bodies, either in the raising, collecting, safekeeping, or dispersing the public revenues, and places the government equally above the temptation of fostering a dangerous and unconstitutional institution at home, or the necessity of adopting its policy to the views and interests of a still more formidable money power abroad. My administration has ensured republicanism, not challenged it, as my opponent is insinuating. General Harrison, let's shift the conversation a bit to discuss military affairs. Having served as a general in the war that occurred during Mr. Madison's administration, how would your administration's military policy differ from Mr. Van Buren's? Long the defender of my country's rights in the field, I trust that my fellow citizens will not see in my earnest desire to preserve peace with foreign powers any indication that their rights will ever be sacrificed or the honor of the nation tarnished by any admission on the part of their chief magistrate, should I be chosen as such, unworthy of their former glory. In the intercourse with our aboriginal neighbors, the same liberality and justice shall be strictly observed, which mark the course prescribed to me by two of my illustrious predecessors, Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison, when acting under their direction in the discharge of the duties of superintendent and commissioner. Having served under General Wayne during his expedition against Indians in the Northwest Territory in 1793 and 1794, I have said that the soldiers under Wayne experienced greater hardships even than the soldiers of the Revolution. Everyone can appreciate the difference between an Indian and a regular war. We are currently engaged in a war against the Seminoles, and I can fully understand how this war differs and how we need to seek a quick resolution to this war that has carried on for far too long already, having been begun in his predecessor's administration. While not wishing to commit myself to specific tactics as I set out on this campaign, with a determination to make no pledges in order to allow myself the freedom to assess the situation once in office, I assure you that my military experience will serve me and, by extension, the nation well. My opponent's administration has put forward a proposal for the organization of the militia that would make it compulsory for each and every free, able-bodied, white male citizens who is or shall be of the age of 20 and under that of 45 years to serve in the militia. But I have concerns about the viability of this proposal as we cannot even serve our current soldiers well upon their release from service. In terms of our veterans from our previous wars, if it should ever be in my power to pay the debt which is due these brave and neglected men, that debt shall first of all be paid, and I am very well satisfied that the government can afford it.
Thank you, sir. Mr. President, would you care to respond? I would. Thank you, sir. General Harrison forgets that, in his record, he puts forward proposals for a similar militia system to Congress during his service in that body in 1817 and 1818. In both cases, both his proposals and that of my Secretary of War, Mr. Poinsett, both projects have the same objects in view to organize and discipline the militia as to obviate the necessity of maintaining a standing army in time of peace and to provide a competent force of well-trained militia to repel invasion and suppress insurrection. However, General Harrison's plan, not only would it have been more expensive to the nation at the cost of three millions of dollars annually versus Mr. Poinsett's plan, which would not exceed $500,000 a year to carry it into full effect, but General Harrison's plan would also authorize the President to address his orders directly to an officer of militia, not to the governors of the states. This seems incongruent with his concerns over monarchical tendencies in the federal government. As for the Seminole campaign, we are making progress under General Armistead, and I am proud of the great work done previously by General Zachary Taylor, who left command earlier this year. The reason for the prolonged nature of this conflict cannot be fairly laid upon any failings, either of the administration or of our military. General Armistead carried out active summer operations and has been met with propositions for peace. Experienced generals in that field of operations have had the command of the troops. Officers and soldiers have alike distinguished themselves for their activity, patience, and enduring courage. The army has been constantly furnished with supplies of every description, and we must look for the causes which have so long procrastinated the issue of the contest in the vast extent of the theater of hostilities, the almost insurmountable obstacles presented by the nature of the country, the climate, and the vile character of the savages. The Florida Territory is more closely tied to the rest of the nation than ever before and I have no doubt that we will have peace soon. Gentlemen, we are drawing near to our first break. I wonder if we could return to the subject of fiscal policy for a moment, as it is such a large concern to many across the nation. Mr. President, opponents in the Whig Party have charged that your and your immediate predecessor's opposition to the National Bank has threatened the financial security of the nation. How would you answer those charges both now and in a second term of office? As stated previously, the key to my administration's fiscal policy is to avoid the creation of a new national debt. In time of peace, there can, at all events, be no justification for the creation of a permanent debt by the federal government. I assure my fellow citizens that we possess within ourselves ample resources for every emergency, and we may be quite sure that our citizens in no future exigency will be unwilling to supply the government with all the means asked for the defense of the country. The new system, the independent treasury, established by Congress for the safekeeping of the public money, prescribing the kind of currency to be received for the public revenue, and providing additional guards and securities against losses, has now been several months in operation. 
although it might be premature upon an experience of such limited duration, to form a definite opinion in regard to the extent of its influences in collecting many evils under which the federal government and the country have hitherto suffered, especially those that have grown out of banking expansions, a depreciated currency, and official defalcations. It is but right to say that nothing has occurred in the practical operation of the system to weaken in the slightest degree, but much to strengthen the confident anticipations of its friends. A few changes and improvements in the details of the system will be submitted to the Congress by the Secretary of the Treasury, but I have every confidence that they will meet the expectations of the people and improve this plan which will ensure a fiscal system to provide financial security and prosperity for all Americans. General Harrison, as an opponent to the Democratic fiscal policies, how would your administration's fiscal policy differ? Would it involve a return to the Bank of the United States? And if so, how would you address Democratic charges of corruption under the previous national banking scheme? First of all, unlike my opponent, and his predecessor, General Jackson, I am in favor of paper money. After long deliberation, I have no hopes that this country can ever go on to prosper under a pure specie currency. Such a currency but makes the poor poorer and the rich richer. If you would know why I'm in favor of the credit system, I can only say it is because I'm a Democrat. The two systems are the only means, under heaven, by which a poor industrious man may become a rich man without bowing to colossal wealth. But with all this, I'm not a bank man. Once in my life I was, and then they cheated me out of every dollar I placed in their hands. But I am in favor of a correct banking system, for the simple reason that the share of the precious metals which, in the course of trade, falls to our lot is much less than the circulating medium which our internal and external commerce demands to raise our prices to a level with the prices of Europe, where the credit system does prevail. There must be some plan to multiply the gold and silver which our industry commands, and there is no other way to do this but by a safe banking system. I do not pretend to say that a perfect system of banking can be devised. There is nothing in the offspring of the human mind that does not savor of imperfection. No plan of government or finance can be devised free from defect. However, a properly devised banking system alone possesses the capability of bringing the poor to a level with the rich. In consequence of the embarrassed state of business and the currency which exists under my opponent's administration, some of the states may meet with difficulty in their financial concerns. It is our duty to encourage them, to the extent of our constitutional authority, to apply their best means and cheerfully to make all necessary sacrifices and submit to all necessary burdens to fulfill their engagements and maintain their credit. For the character and credit of the several states form a part of the character and credit of the whole country. The resources of the country are abundant, the enterprise and activity of our people proverbial, and we may well hope that wise legislation and prudent administration, both at the state 
and the federal level, each acting within its own sphere, will restore former prosperity. Thank you, General. And that brings us to our first break. Gentlemen, thank you for a lively and informative first round in this, the first presidential debate in the 1840 election from the College of New Jersey in Princeton. There's much more that I could add to this, but I think that is enough for one episode. I hope that this exercise has proven enlightening. While historians tend to think of the 1840 election as being slogan-driven and lacking in substance, I hope that this has helped to show that there were numerous issues being discussed in the public sphere. And this didn't even get to issues of U.S. tensions with Great Britain, the question of Texas, and of course, the growing issue of slavery. As Election Day nears, let's hope that the voters today focus more on the substance of policy arguments of the debates up for election in the various offices on the ballot, rather than the rhetoric. And in the case of the presidential election, I leave you with John Adams' prayer, with a small modification for the 21st century, but otherwise as written to his wife Abigail on November 2, 1800, after he assumed residency in the White House. Quote, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men or women ever rule under this roof. If you like this episode, please feel free to leave a comment on our blog or on the Facebook page. Shoot me an email or give us a good review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time when we return to our regularly scheduled journey through Harrison's life. Take care, all.